0: If you can appoint a really great person into a role with significant responsibility, that will touch lots of other lives in a really positive way.
1: Purposely podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm well welcome to episode eighty-eight of Purposely with Simon Lucas. Simon is the CEO and founder of Society, not the whole Society. But the recruitment and executive search firm based in the UK is B Corp, which is phenomenal. Really loved this episode, really loved our conversation. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues, and please leave a review if you get a chance. Enjoy. Simon Lucas, welcome to Purposee Podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be with you. You're the CEO and founder of Society, a global
0: executive search firm. What's I society? am. It's a ridiculous job title, really, isn't it? Chief Executive of Society. Of Society. I think it's a great title. Absolutely. In <laughs> <laughs> its absolute sense. Something's really unique about society. And what is it? Well, we should probably start by acknowledging the sector I work in has a terrible reputation, doesn't it? I mean, where, where do we sit, Mark, in people's affections? Probably somewhere between, what, estate agents and lawyers, I guess, headhunters. Not universally beloved. Um And I think a a lot of what went into making society is a reaction against that. It's a belief that the executive search function, the question of who leads, can and should be better. And uh, so we've tried to build a company that's really ethical, really purpose-led, responsible and sustainable. We're one of a tiny handful of search firms around the world to have achieved B Corporation certification. We give 10% of our profits to a charity that we help set up. I mean, there's a lot that probably marks us out as being a little bit different in our landscape. Yeah, because you're a trustee of the Society Foundation as well, aren't you? Well, I was one of the founding trustees. I actually then um, stepped down and uh, now the head of our not-for-profit practice, Tanya Stevens, is one of our trustees. But the majority of the trustees of the foundation are entirely independent of the business. and That, that was always um, quite an important thing for us, that they they hand out money but they do it based purely on need and not on what's going to look good in a press release for the business. Wonderful. And tell me a bit about becoming a B Corp. And and was that always in the business plan? No, it it wasn't initially, because uh, at the stage at which we set up the business, I I guess the B Corp movement was only just getting going and really only in the US. So it, it emerged organically over time. But the idea of being part of a movement of responsible businesses was always really important to us. So uh for a long time we were one of the smallest members of business in the community, a, a group of about eight hundred responsible businesses in the UK. Um and it was in, I guess, twenty eighteen that we first really started to zero in on, on B Corp certification as being something we uh, we wanted to achieve. Yeah, and it and it's becoming increasingly popular. Was it a hard sell to your directors at the time? Not at all, actually, and I think that speaks to the the, the level of values alignment that runs throughout the business. Uh, that it, it, as soon as we started talking about it, it was it was obvious, it was logical that that was clearly where we belonged and, and what we should seek to do. And I think we we set off on the journey motivated by certain things, and what we've discovered is some other good benefits of that along the way. But we we were all very clear at the outset that it was um, the right course of action. And give us a feel of the size of the business and then maybe how
1: you're different, like some practical examples of, of how being a, a, a big court recruitment company is different.
0: Yeah. So we're about 20 colleagues split between the UK, the US and New Zealand. Uh, so we see the mission of the firm as being placing exceptional people into meaningful roles within good organizations so that those people and those organizations can make the world a better place. That That's the mission statement. You talk to anyone in the business, they will uh, know that off by heart. But I think if you, you step back and you unpack it a little bit, there's a lot within that. So exceptional people, to me, means you need to look for the broadest possible spectrum of talent. So a strong commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion has been baked into the firm since day one. Um, you know, we Last year, I think 57% of our appointments were female, 31% of our appointments were from a black Asian or minority ethnic background, which I know is a problematic categorization, but it just sort of indicates, I think, how we might be making appointments that quite literally look different to um, those that some of the other firms in our space do. If you talk about meaningful roles, then for me, that doesn't just mean leadership roles. Um, That can also mean a non-executive position. So we do quite a bit of board work as well. You talk about good organizations. For us, that isn't solely about working with charities. We do a lot of work in the nonprofit sector, but we have an extremely diverse client portfolio, taking in schools and universities and profit-making businesses with Strong CSR agendas and social enterprises and and all sorts, and then finally, in you know, making the world a better place. That's the the end goal. It might sound quite grandiose, but we've always thought globally, and uh, and that's the reason we've uh, set up a presence in in New York, and London, and in Auckland, is so that we can literally follow the sun. We we're, we're constantly uh, able to serve a global portfolio of, of clients and work on global appointments. so despite the fact I'm based in the UK and we're headquartered in the UK we think of ourselves very much as a, a global business And I always
1: characterize a business like yours as one that will say no to opportunities if they aren't aligned with your identity or thinking or you know your what you've described just there and that, that must be hard though are there are times when you sort of put down that phone quite. Carefully and gone. Wow, we just that could have you know covered our target for the
0: next six months, but we we, have, we will say no to that. Absolutely. From very early on, we were clear that there were certain types of organisation we really wanted to work with. But over the first few years of the business, we realised we needed to go further than that, and we needed to codify that there might be certain types of organisation we just wouldn't work with, and that we also needed a process in place if there was a disagreement within the firm about whether a client relationship was appropriate or not. And I was kind of shocked when we reached that realization that I couldn't find a precedent for this. I was looking at lots of other professional service firms, um, not just search firms, but law firms and accountancy firms. And I, I was trying to find some business out there that had a, a clear public framework that said, you know, this is how we decide on what's an appropriate client relationship. We, we just couldn't find a precedent. So we had to create that from scratch. We call it our client framework. It's published on our website. It sets out the sorts of organizations we really want to work for, the sorts of organizations we absolutely won't work for. So there are seven sectors we just don't ever touch. It picks out the reasons why we might turn down a particular client relationship, and it it lays out the process for an individual colleague raising a concern. And we have had to put it into action a few times, less and less often, interestingly, though, over the years, because I think in, in, after a while it starts to become self reinforcing. Certain organizations look at you and see the client portfolio that you're working with, and they conclude themselves that uh, you're probably not going to be right as a partner. There definitely have been times where we put down the phone and thought, wow, we just walked away from a lot of work there. And um, the interesting thing is, you would think that might leave a business feeling slightly deflated. Every single time, though, that we've done that, I think it's left us with a spring in our step because it's just been a visible demonstration to colleagues that the values aren't just something that we write on a wall. They're um, things that we, we try and live day in, day
1: out. Yeah, and I think it's it's the long game, isn't it? You it, you really defined what your business stood for, um, what was important to it, and um, you know that kind of strong identity... Uh, you may not win, you know, every battle or, um, you know, boost income every quarter, but, and, and, you know, you'll have organizations now who will only want to work with you partially because of, of what you stand for and, and,
0: um, the fact that you are a B Corp. I hope so. I mean, the, the B Corp thing's really interesting because uh, we went into it initially attracted by the idea that it would help us demonstrate externally that we genuinely were what we said we were. So it was a, independently uh, accredited uh, stamp that says you are really a responsible, sustainable business. And we we wanted to be able to prove that to people. And secondly, we wanted to bake all of that into the DNA of the business so um, that it couldn't be stripped out again at a later point. So one of the things you have to do to become a B Corporation is to change your articles of association, You're literally the, the governing document of your business, in order to say that you're not solely focused on profit, that actually your your priorities are around um, a multiplicity of different stakeholders. And so we, we, we did all of that and for those reasons. But what we found once we were in the community is a group of other like-minded businesses who we could partner with and who actually wanted to partner with us in some cases as well. And we found a roadmap keep getting better. So you have to recertify as a B Corp every three years. We're, we're just going through our recertification right now. And the, the structure of the accreditation makes it quite straightforward to pinpoint things that you're not good enough at yet and, and to lay out a plan. So we've, we've kind of stumbled across that sense of community. That maybe wasn't part of our original intention, but it's been a, a lovely byproduct of, uh, of going through the process. And I really want to touch out on your
1: a story and, and that move. But before we do that, I just want to um, pick up a point around your identity. So are you a Welshman um, living, in Eng- <laughs> living in
0: England? Oh, I've got a very confused identity, Mark. I was born in Oxford, grew up in Sheffield, Edinburgh, and Swansea. And if you want to really overcomplicate it, I was born on St. Patrick's Day. So I'm, I'm about as all round confused British as they come. I support Wales in the rugby. I've probably now come to think of it lived in England for the majority of like my life over 50% of my life but there's a Welsh flag hanging on my wall within inside of me right now um, so that's maybe where my loyalty is like and the reason for the the moving was that your parents and their jobs or yeah um, my dad was a, a surgeon um, and yeah, you know, surgeons are pretty mobile and they tend to go where the promotion is so we we moved around a lot and and yeah and in many ways, that was great, actually. It, um, I think one of the things it probably does to you as a kid is uh, get used pretty quickly to uh, you know, having to meet new people and um, and make new relationships. And, and so there, there maybe is something in that in terms of uh, the career choice that I ended up making. But we, we settled in Swansea for a good chunk of time. And, and then I went to... Um, university in the the Midlands of England, so um, a city called Warwick, or the university is called Warwick. It's actually nowhere near the the town of Warwick. But um, uh, I went there and then stumbled into England. It's in Coventry, absolutely. Yeah,
1: good knowledge. And were you president there? So leadership role kicked in pretty early, or part of the student union at least, in a a leadership role? Yeah,
0: I... um, again, slightly slightly fell into it. So I was there doing a three-year philosophy and politics degree. And in the final year, some friends and I put our names down to, to run for election, to be sabbatical officers in the Students' Union. And slightly to my surprise, and I think everyone else's, I got elected. And so I, I did a sabbatical year as president of the Students' Union at Warwick. And Warwick's a fantastically enlightened university and the role that it affords Student reps. So every Monday morning, I would wander up to um, what used to be National Grid House on the campus and be in the senior management team meeting of the university, the steering group as they called it, with the vice chancellor and and his sort of direct reports. As a what twenty-one year old, listening and sometimes contributing to how this uh, enormous, complicated organisation was being led. And and that was a huge privilege and incredibly eye-opening and, and did a massive amount to sort of change my thinking and trajectory. And then during that year, the vice-chancellor of the university decided to retire early. And so suddenly the university was faced with replacing him and uh, called in a beauty parade of headhunters. And I genuinely didn't know that this was a type of business that was out there. I, I'd never thought of it and I'd never come across it in any other form. But th- these executive search consultants were suddenly on campus to sort of pitch for our business. And uh, we decided to work with what at the time was a, a relatively small and relatively new firm. I was involved in, in briefing them, and um, they knew that my job at Warwick was obviously time limited. And uh, we Hit it off, I think, and they um, they ultimately offered me a job. Fantastic! And would you describe yourself as a old head on young shoulders at that point? <laughs> oh God, that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Like I was sort of born middle aged. No, I mean, I, I was yeah, I was a twenty year old, uh, twenty one year old. You know, I, I'm. I think I was probably um, profoundly you know naive in in certain things, and I, I made all sorts of wrong steps. Certainly, and continue to do so. You know, I'm very much of the growth mindset outlook. I continually trying to improve, but I clearly was the sort of person who tried to seek out responsibility and felt comfortable in a leadership role, maybe a little bit earlier than others might have, or perhaps I should have. So I don't don't think necessarily old wise head on young shoulders, but um, but maybe a little bit precocious or overconfident. Yeah. And what really appealed about being a hit hunter? Look, I'll, I'll be honest. At the time when I took the job, it was yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was an opportunity to move down to London, work in a different environment and, and just try something different. Uh, what I fell in love with about it though, well, I guess a, a number of things. It's a license to be nosy. Let's start with that. You get to meet all sorts of fascinating people. And you get to ask them quite intimate questions and find out what makes them tick. And I I think that's fascinating. Uh, You also get to peek under the bonnet of organizations. So clients call you in and they start telling you things with a level of candor that they might not even communicate to their own staff with. And and so that's also really interesting. I, I like the ripple effect of it. So I like the fact that if you can appoint a really great person into a role with significant responsibility, that will touch lots of other lives in a really positive way. The lives of their staff, the lives of their beneficiaries. You know, th- it feels like it sends out positive ripples in that way. I, I love encountering excellence. I-, I love finding people who are just really, really good at what they do. And that doesn't necessarily have to be you know, leading organizations. That that could be something much more specific and and functional than that. But I I just always got a thrill out of seeing people who have mastery of their chosen career. And and then I guess, finally, there's a certain neatness to it. This might sound really OCD, but um, I think so many jobs in the service industry in particular, they are a bit of a process. And you might advise or consult on something and then handed over and have no control over what happens next. The appointment process is quite neat and self-contained. You you take the brief, you deliver the process, and at the end of it, someone's been appointed, and even the unsuccessful candidates have been turned down and have had useful feedback, and you you can kind of tie it all up with a neat little bow if you're doing it right. And that's always appealed to me as well. I think that is an element of it that I, I genuinely enjoy. Yeah.
1: Finishing and completing and, and, you know, nailing something in terms of, um, the world and how people recruit, how they search, how they uh, appoint. I mean, just, you know, borrowing something that Elon Musk said around he made, he reckons he made a mistake around hiring people for the qualifications that he should have just focused on their personality. Has your approach changed? Has, has the world changed around, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll teach you the ropes. They'll, you know, you'll get there in the end but as, as long as the person's the right fit for the organization the role and the right
0: personality that can overcome almost everything I think there is something in that and you talk to most chief executives and you know, kick around the theory for example that ultimately there are two types of colleague there are radiators and there are drains there are there are people who bring sort of a really positive energy and there are people who pull some of that positive energy away. And, and most cheap executives on some level will will kind of recognize and, and accept that as a framework. But like all huge oversimplifications, it, it misses a massive amount of complexity. And I, I think the best hires are still those where you've got a radiator who's bringing great positive energy, you've got the capability to, to do the job and the, the potential to really Flourish in it, and then thirdly, you've got a real values alignment with the organisation. You're you're in it for the right reasons. You're, you know, pointing in the same direction. And really, I I think organisations should be seeking to get all three of those things in place rather than just settling for um, sort of good energy or good intent. That in and of itself is, is it's necessary but not sufficient. Because
1: yeah, how we re- recruit is is sort of under the pump in some ways, isn't it? Because Trad- more traditional forms of selection, um, have often meant that, you know, people with, um, autism, you know, neurodiverse people don't even get to the, the starting blocks or, or, the, you know, doesn't open the door for diversity. But, um, that, that to me from the outside looking in looks like the biggest change that's happening at the moment in terms of different ways of oh, working.
0: It, absolutely. And, and let's, celebrate this is something I say to my colleagues, that we're in this fantastically privileged position to advise on the question of who leads at exactly the time where suddenly it's possible to start to change that dynamic and and start to draw in talent from a much broader spectrum. So we talk incessantly about how you can access great people from historically underrepresented groups how you can make the recruitment process more inclusive how you can embed equity uh, more powerfully within organizations and one of the things we did last year was create a, a toolkit uh, because we we've been reading all these reports kept coming out sort of 60 page reports which would talk about one isolated initiative at um some particular organization and there didn't seem to be anything out there that just compiled all of the different practical interventions that you might be able to consider in order to run a more inclusive recruitment process. So we created what we call a, our inclusive recruitment toolkit. We put it out there and, and within a week it had been downloaded something like 2,000 times. I mean, it just shows you the appetite that people have to learn and improve on this front. Um, I was doing a, a seminar yesterday on it for a few hundred people, um, university HR people in the UK. And there are so many organizations that want to address some of these historic injustices, who want to build uh, more diverse, equitable, and inclusive organizations. And yet, translating that goodwill into reality has been proving really, really hard, and that they're just desperate for practical levers that they can pull on in in order to get better outcomes. And, uh, And we're in a fantastically privileged position where we can help to provide that. Yeah. And I that's
1: so work exciting. needs to be done, doesn't it? I mean, it can't just change overnight after being at such a deficit for so long.
0: No, but it, it has to happen faster. And I think everyone uh, agrees on that. And that was one of the big wake-up calls of the murder of George Floyd in, in 2020. Yeah, that's, I think, why it sent shockwaves around the world, because we'd seen that story so many times before. No, yeah, there was more goodwill and eagerness to change than at any other point in in history, and yet still the same stories were were playing out. So I think that's galvanised a lot of people to say that the pace of this just has to be faster. Now we 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 have to crack these things once and for all, and uh, and and so it's it's a continual theme in our conversations with clients. I'm really heartened every time we get a yeah a request for a tender or, or something, and and they're putting diversity, equity, and inclusion right at, at the forefront because it, it just suggests that um, that this wave is going to keep on, keep on rolling and, until we actually make some lasting change. Yeah, wonderful.
1: Now, picking up on your career again, and um, in terms of your uh, move uh, to Parrot Lever, so that's where you ended up at, um, which is that's a right. really well-known, um, well-respected,
0: um, but you, you would say more on the commercial end focus for, for uh, search? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that that business has changed and evolved over time. So when I joined the Parrot Labor Partnership, as it was, PLP, back in the days, it was sort of five or six of us in a basement in Victoria. And and yeah, uh, some of the biggest clients of the business at that point were private sector. Yeah, Asda, Walmart was, um, uh, was probably the, the biggest in those years. But um, over time... The role of the higher education sector, in, in particular, really grew to, to take on the, the mantle of their biggest focus, and, and and that obviously fitted with some of my interests and background as well. And uh, I got on always very well with Dan Parent and Simon Laver, the two founders of of that business. They're really my sort of mentors and, and inspirations in search, and 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 they backed me and and supported me ultimately in in spinning off and setting up Society. So we, we don't, we, we don't see ourselves as sort of competitive with, um, with parrot labor, um, with totally separate businesses, but, um, but there is a similarity, I guess, in terms of our origin story and our values.
1: Yeah. And it's not just because you were the nicest guy in the firm and, uh, they thought
0: <laughs> we should send this guy off to, to talk to the charities, the nonprofits, the third sector. Uh, I, I think it was motivated by different stuff. I mean, and, and they, yeah do w- lots of work with uh, those sectors as well but I think we were collectively interested in the idea of what happens if you you put a firm out there that nails its colors to the mast in terms of its values yeah so many executive search firms around the world they are the surnames of two white men, normally in white text on a blue background i mean it's it's a total cliche but yeah so many of, of the firms that dominate this landscape have that same hinterland and um and some of them you know have really values-led people within them uh, but mostly they kind of hide that under a bushel and we wanted to be explicit about it we, we literally called the business society our strap line for years was make an impact and it was it was all about uh working with responsible businesses and purpose-driven organizations in order to change the world and we, we just that felt like an interesting experiment would people respond positively to that thankfully it turns out they have takes back to 2004 2005 so what, what
1: did that did that feel like a real risk at the time did you fit were you unsure like did you you know suddenly you ended up in your bedroom making phone calls or <laughs> you, you had that support of the other firm to kind of incubate what you'll do
0: we had support it you know was obviously a risk, but um, in some ways, you, know, you you have to take the plunge at a certain point and see whether there's an interest in what you're putting out there in, in the world. So I don't think I stressed about it particularly at, at, at the time. Weirdly, maybe the sort of arrogance of being a, a bit younger, but um, we just we just went for it, hammer and tongs, and it, it worked out relatively swiftly it became clear relatively swiftly that there was a community of people out there and organizations who wanted to be allies to what we were talking about and yeah with the exception of 2020 which was yeah a hairy period i think for a lot of executive search firms uh, as the pandemic took hold with the, with the exception of that period it, it has been relatively smooth sailing um, ever since, you know, it's, it's, we've felt on this sort of steady upward trajectory, not in a hurry or a sort of blinding rush, but just sort of putting one foot in front of the other and hopefully getting better at what we do every year. Yeah. And, and focusing you,
1: Simon, on a bit in your leadership. And, but before we do that, I just want to pick up on, cause, cause ultimately, you know, recruitment, um, head hunting, uh, executive search. It comes down to a certain amount of, of commercial reality that the money has to roll in and, you know, you need to cover salaries and you need to make a profit, a li- little bit less of a focus for you guys than others. But, you know, like, how, how do you fit with that sort of, you know, commercial imperative? Like, how does it fit for you? Is it something, cause you, you strike me as someone who is quite people focused, you know, your human story is an, an interesting one for you from what you said, but, That sort of commercial drive—is that something that comes because you're suddenly you're the leader now, um, the CEO, the founder, uh, and and that was
0: that? Does that come as a bit of a jolt? It's arguably a weakness of mine as the leader of a business that I'm insufficiently interested in money. (laughs) I think uh, we've remained consistently profitable. We we've grown. I've had to learn some lessons along the way about the importance of. You yeah, have very good cash flow management um, and yeah, the old adage that um, turnover is vanity, profit is sanity. But we've done okay for ourselves, but it's never been the end goal for me. I really, I do think of the money as, as the fuel that goes in the car. You know, the the money is not where you're driving to. It's just the thing that allows you to keep driving and keep getting to where you want to go. And the impact is, is the thing that motivates me genuinely. I, um, I, I want it to be a business where everyone can, can do well. And I get excited when we have colleagues who join the business and you know, have been able ultimately to put down a deposit on a house or something like that. that. That makes me feel good, obviously. But I think experience would suggest that most people who work at our firm could go elsewhere and earn more money. I mean, it's it's been pretty clear to us when we've had competitors sort of sniffing around our, our staff that uh, that we maybe don't pay as competitively as others out there in the market because we choose to work with a certain client portfolio and. and Maybe on slightly lower fees some of the time, but none of that's ever really bothered me because that's not ultimately what I'm in it for. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I know you've,
1: you know, done a great job of of keeping stuff and and some of them for a very long time.
0: How would they describe you as a leader? Oh my god, that's a horrible question, Mark. That's um, <laughs> I okay. So if I start from the critical side of things, I would have thought impatient is. Probably one of my less attractive qualities. Yeah, I'm I'm continually in a hurry for us to do what we want to do. I normally have a slightly unrealistic expectation of how quickly we might be able to do certain things, and and so that that impatient drive, which yeah, let's be honest, is is something that is probably a bit of a prerequisite to start up a business. Is still a part of my personality and. And something I try and sort of control and and moderate increasingly as we uh, get bigger and and more mature as a firm. I hope they would say, in addition to that, though, that I am clear and consistent on what I believe and how I treat people, and they can always predict with a high level of accuracy where I'm going to come down on certain things. And I I think that level of predictability in leadership is really important. Because otherwise, you're not creating that circle of safety and security for for colleagues to get on and, and do things and act with a you know high degree of autonomy, confident in the fact that you're going to be behind them and, and happy with with where they're heading. Um, so I, I hope people would say that about me as well. Yeah, great. And recruitment,
1: executive search typically gets squeezed in tough times, where March twenty twenty. The world's gone down the route of a global pandemic. Did that hit you and cause huge anxiety? What was it like being a leader then? Do you look back at those sort of early calls you you made and say,
0: actually, do you know what we got it right? Or was it a, a sort of journey? It should have put us out of business, is is the bottom line. And that's not just because the first thing everyone stops doing in a pandemic is hiring. But also, because of when it happened. So eleven years that the business had been running up until that point, I don't think we could have picked a moment to hit us that would have been worse. We had just moved into a big new office in Hatton Garden. We were still paying for our other old office in um the sort of Fitzrovia part of London. And uh, we were doing dilapidations on that space. We'd just done a big expensive fit out on the new space. We'd just thrown a big client bash, which obviously, you yeah, know, that, that was late February 2020. So that that, in hindsight was a bit of a super spreader event, I think. And, you yeah, know, from a cash flow position, because we're making that transition from one other office to the next, we were more stretched than we'd probably ever been. And then suddenly the the world switches off. And everyone's told to go home and every organization stops hiring. We had live assignments that were just cancelled left, right and center. We had work that we had already done and were owed money on. Our clients were picking up the phone to us saying, we're really sorry. We're not going to be able to pay you. Uh, we have to pay our staff first. We had colleagues falling sick left, right and center. We had clients and candidates, uh, likewise really struggling. And so, so it should have been the thing that killed us. It, it really should have. And the, the fact that we got through it is a huge achievement and one that I think we collectively share as a team because the way we got through it was to put our people first and to put our clients first and to make sacrifices together. Because we did that, we, by the sort of back end of the summer, as as levels of work started to pick up again, we, we could be confident that we were going to, um, uh, we were going to survive. I, I think if we'd taken the alternate route, which some firms did of, of, Focusing on maintaining financial viability over headcount, we could also have survived, but I, I certainly wouldn't be proud of of that. But if we had been anything less than clear on our strategy, I, th- I think we yeah we would have gone bust at some point during that summer because it really got very very hairy for a while. Thank goodness though, last year it just it just flipped back. So last year was sort of record year in terms of income and profitability and busyness so at some point at the end of 2020 it was just like even though we were in the uk still in lockdown at, um in the early part of 2021 it was like someone somewhere flipped a switch and then just suddenly it was it was back to normal but that that summer of 2020 i wouldn't want to revisit in a hurry
1: yeah because if we look back at 2008 it was a you know financial crisis and but you know hit to 2020 there really wasn't a playbook for a pandemic and and people hadn't predicted that was it From your messaging around how you would approach it, where did it come from for you? Where had you, did you read a lot, talk to people? Where where did the approach, um, which, you know, ended up being the right one for you guys? Where did that come from, from within you? Um, that sounds like high contact with clients and, and, you know, hitting the phones and, um, yeah, really ramping up your relationship ability across the firm. Where did it come from for you? Where did that decision
0: making happen? It came from talking to people. It came from knowing that I wanted to be able to look myself in the mirror at the end of all of this, however it ended. It came from being surrounded by great friends and family and support. Uh, One person I'll give a shout out to, a former colleague of mine from Perret Labor Days called Andrea Kilpatrick, who's now an executive coach, who just reached out to me and offered me coaching support during those early months of the pandemic. And, And so then suddenly I had Someone unconnected with the business who i I could just be entirely candid with uh, and that was massively valuable uh, and then I'm also someone who like to think in ink, so I find it really helpful sometimes just to sit down and write things so I remember relatively early on, maybe sort of late March early April, I sat down and, and wrote five principles for getting through this, and it was uh, clients come first, we have to support our suppliers, we have to share the pain but I go first, so any any sacrifices that I'm asking others in the business to make, I'm going to do it first, and only ask others to do it if they're necessary. I think the fourth was over communicating, so yeah, just a recognition of the fact that we needed to go to town on on making sure that everyone knew what was happening and that, that they were getting those messages with a level of compassion and empathy, and then finally trust the team. You know, I, I think that was a realization early on that. Um, as we shifted to entirely remote working, there was a temptation to up the level of management, to try and sort of micromanage and compensate for the, the fact that you're no longer in the same space as people. And we, we tried to push against that, You know, avoid reasserting rigid hierarchies and, uh, and, and systems and processes, but just trust, okay, these are the same people they were in February. They were doing their job well then. They're going to do it well now that I can't see them every day. And... Um, uh, those those five principles served us really well i think
1: what effect did i think did it have on you did you were you sleeping were you fun to be around at home were you what what did you i mean i'll say take at home but you were at home
0: I, I was working long long hours because we, we have two small children they were what five and one when the pandemic hit and um you know i was i was having to get up we yeah, first thing in the morning in order to get some work done before they're awake and then it was just chaos during the day and then um my wife and i would normally fix ourselves a cocktail once we would got them into bed and then work for another 5 hours and that was um that was tough but the weird thing is and i've, I've heard a lot of people say this i am starting to look back on that summer maybe through rose tinted spectacles as a kind of golden summer it's really odd but um i spent a huge amount of time with my wife and kids and we had a lot of fun. We sort of created this whole program of activities for my daughter in, in particular, um, themed horrible history days. So we'd do a day on the rotten Romans and a day on the groovy Greeks and a day on the vile Victorians. And, you know, we, we would have breakfast, lunch and dinner together. And the weather in the UK that summer, fortuitously, was glorious. I mean, you, you can't normally say that when you live in the UK, but for <laughs> once, for once, the weather was really really nice and so best of times worst of times um, I'm afraid that's the cliche but it it really is a a period I would not want to revisit from a work perspective but from a personal perspective I will probably for the rest of my life look back on that summer as a really special time.
1: And great to hear that you guys have have bounced back and and um, I guess you know work has changed possibly forever and you know more of home and what Freedom around what people want to do with their time and, and less of that sort of pretending to work at work, uh, physically in an office in town, <laughs> maybe, um, possibly as we move towards wrapping up, just want to hit some quick fire questions at you.
0: Um, if that's okay. Sure. What you listen to, what are you reading? Uh, my reading's got out of control right now. So I have five books in a pile by my bedside, mostly nonfiction, it has to be said. The only one I'm making any headway with um right now is is just really light and fun. But it's um a book by the comedian Mark Steele uh talking about his travels around the UK. And this guy does a a radio show, or I guess you could call it a podcast now, called Mark Steele's In Town, where he visits different towns around um the UK and gets to know them and then basically does a stand-up routine about them. I, I just I'm finding that gloriously relaxing and sort of something that puts a smile on my face before I go to bed. And then I'll probably work my way down the pile of five books, <laughs> which are on progressively more serious subjects over the next couple of weeks. What am I listening to? Um, my daughter is getting into music. So this is, this is hugely exciting. And um, she wanted to make her first playlist the other week and asked me to help her Um, She told me she would write me a list of all of her favorite songs and wanted me to set this up on Spotify. Uh, There were 10 tracks, five of them were David Bowie. So I feel like I've done brilliantly as a parent. I'm I'm mostly listening to those 10 tracks over and over again, but she's got good taste in music, which um, augurs really well for the future. Got to love a playlist. And in terms of (laughs) who did or live, you'd like to have lunch with? Oh, that's an interesting question. We used to ask that of um, prospective colleagues in interviews. Years back, and I, I think I might have been asked that, and I can't remember what I said. But I think my answer now would be different. I, I think it would be uh, family members, departed family members. You know, th- those are the ones I long to have a conversation with. As, as interesting as it would be to sit down for lunch with John F. Kennedy or Gandhi or um, you know, Julius Caesar or Mother Teresa, you know, I'd, I'd like to see my grandparents again and um, and ask them the questions that you never. Think to ask when you're a kid, and yeah, someone's in their seventies or eighties. That would be a fascinating recalibration of a, a relationship um, to encounter them again as an adult. So, uh, yeah, sentimental, but that's where I go. I think.
1: And last quick fire question: personal organization that you're most excited by, or you're really you're seeing coming through and do,
0: doing amazing things. Oh, that's that's a very tough one because I. I look at it through several different lenses um, and because we work across so many different geographies and and sectors I think the the area of the economy that I'm most instinctively excited about is the social enterprise arena is is this emerging arena where you're combining the profit motive with the focus on impact. And there are all sorts of organizations in that space that I get really excited about. Um, you know, clothing brands like Patagonia, FMCG businesses like Pip and Nut, you know professional service firms like Bates Wells. And thankfully due to my job, I I get to yeah, interact with quite a few of these and uh and meet them and get to know them as well. So that that's the space, and it's the people who are leading and sort of setting up those kind of businesses that I am um, I'm most instinctively excited about right now. Yeah, great. And the future for
1: society, what excites you about? Um, that?
0: Yeah, look, we, we want to keep scaling, we want to diversify into new areas, and we want to get ever greater global reach. So those are the sort of three priorities for us. And my hope is that technology is going to carry on doing what it's been doing, which is make our lives more straightforward, um, reduce the need to spend bandwidth on the transactional side and therefore free up bandwidth to spend on the stuff that's really fun, which is the value add, it's the relationships and the inclusion and diversity and assessing for potential, and aftercare and, and cultivating this, this sense of community. That's uh, what I want to be spending my time and energy on. And I think the team would say the same. Wonderful, Simon Lucas, thanks for joining me on Purposely. been great to chat to you, Mark. Thanks for listening to
1: Purposely podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.